organizer who teaches sex ed. And I'm Antonia, and I'm a doula. We're here to share unfiltered information about self-managed abortion, otherwise known as SMA. We've interviewed people with wide-ranging perspectives on the medical, legal, technological, and personal questions that arise within SMA. We've built a chorus of voices that demystifies SMA and a platform that people already have as a part of their daily routines. We're not here to tell you what to do or to advocate for SMA, but rather to share stories. So today we are chatting with Beverly Winnikoff, and Beverly is a professor at Columbia School of Public Health. She's also the president of Genuity Health Projects which is an organization that supports reproductive health research, among many other things. And before that, she served at the Population Council for 25 years, and she was the program director for reproductive health. This interview felt like the two of us, like kind of perched in her lap, like listening like two little kittens, because she is a titan she has been in this space for so long and listening to her talk about the beginning of mifepristone which is otherwise known as are you 486 and it felt like we were sort of doing one of these backstage interviews for like a biopic on the creation of this pill which i mean she describes it at one point as gunpowder like that's how it was being treated by the international community of drug manufacturers retailers etc so for me this episode is really just like a little peephole into the politics of making this medication mm-hmm. in the first place mm-hmm. we had an amazing time talking to beverly and we hope you feel the same way Boop. have a listen Why don't we just dive right in? Uh, One question that Antonia and I uh, thought might be a good jumping off point, uh, not just for for this conversation, but for a lot of the different conversations we're we're having through this podcast is, uh, Beverly, could you maybe describe to us when you first learned what an abortion was? Like, can you, can you anchor us in? Oh my goodness. I have no idea, but it was way before I was a professional. Right, right. So that's what, that's what we were sort of anticipating. Yeah. I remember we used to go out for Coke and French fries in high school or junior high. And we had, we would, I I was shocked to find that one of my co-students thought abortion was not a good idea. And so I don't know where it came to me that it was okay to have an abortion, but mm-hmm. um, but I remember being very shocked that somebody in one of these, you know, like Coke and French fry after school meetups was against allowing people to have abortions. I thought that was really strange. I, so, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think my pro-choice proclivities were set very early. Do you think that that had something to do with your parents or, or family dynamics? Like, was, was it ever discussed um, at your table type thing? I don't know. I don't know. I know my mother was, I mean, they were very, um, I, I think they weren't against abortion. But on the other hand, they, they knew the social stigma. I remember my mm-hmm. mother being a little perturbed when she found out that 
her many many years later that her OBGYN had been arrested for doing abortions and mm. she found that embarrassing mm. um, but I don't think it was because people had abortions it was because there was a social stigma to being arrested for something and yeah, yeah you know what I mean mm-hmm. I don't know but I, obviously since we talked about these things in in our family it wasn't mm. a dreadful dark thing Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that many women knew about abortion long before it was legal and and right. people who had had abortions and and felt that there were times when people couldn't do anything but that to preserve their lives, you know. So I know I was always pro-choice from whenever it was I knew about choice. And can you tell us a little bit about what led you from that pro-choice perspective to actually working as actively as you do in in reproductive justice and rights? Sure. It, it's not a straight line, actually. I didn't start out motivated to do work on choice, particularly, although I always was, you know, appreciative of Margaret Sanger and thinking that, you know, birth control shouldn't be a secret and all that stuff. That, but my, my trajectory came through um, being interested in maternal child health. I was actually originally doing a lot of work on nutrition and infant nutrition and reasons why women didn't breastfeed their children. I was hired by the Population Council to um, work on the fertility effects of breastfeeding. And when I was at the Population Council, of course, a lot of the work was on contraception, which I was also very interested in, but hadn't really been working on that. So I began to do more on contraception, and then the Population Council became one of two agencies in the world who had a contract with Rousselle Klaff, which was the pharmaceutical company that mm-hmm. invented that drug. And so they were they and were allowed to um, be supplied with the drug for their basic science and other clinical trials. So there were two agencies in the world that could do this, that that, that had a call on Rosella Claff that they would have to be, provide a material for research to these two agencies. One was the World Health Organization and the other was the Population Council. Hmm. So it was a kind of a serendipitous situation. Um, because everybody, you know, everybody was afraid of it. It was like it was like gunpowder or something. I mean, everybody was scared. There was a sort of aura of fear around this. And I think the fear was that this was, it was like having a genie in a bottle, right? You know, it was so powerful an idea mm-hmm. that people were afraid to develop it. And so there were a lot of complications. But in fact, the, the the population council started out started doing you know animal testing and other things, and World Health Organization did some things also. And Rousseau Klaff um, had a couple of employees. Well, one in particular who was extremely attached to this molecule and saw it as a, a political statement as well over in Paris. So we had sort of a a channel of people who are interested in working on this drug. And so we kind of got the permission of the pop council to work on the drug. Um, and I could go into a lot more of a kind of, but that's sort of the, the trajectory to getting to work on it. And then how that 
rolled out was a whole longer story. And, and some of the twists and turns that had to do with much larger events and other people than, than those of us just in the trenches, you know, so. Mm-hmm. And around what time, like what, what year is that? This was just when um, the drug was, it became, um, I mean, it was sort of a, a, an object of more basic science kind yeah. of inquiry, but it became more publicized when Rousselle Claff actually registered the drug, yeah. um, which was in the late 80s. And, and then there was all this hullabaloo here among people who knew that why should French women have this wonderful p- possibility and why American women couldn't mm-hmm. have it because it was not getting to the U.S. At the same time, I, w- I was very interested in this pill because looking around the world, it was clear that contraceptive programs weren't getting to everybody, that there was a huge amount of need for, for safe abortion, and there were deficient health services. So what could be better than a pill that a woman could take by herself? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. So, the, I mean, the, the aura of self-managed was always around this because it was a pill. You didn't need anybody to do anything to you. You didn't need to lie down on a table and have something inserted into you to get your abortion done, right? You, you just could take a pill. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of revolutionary, right? And it meant it could go places where medical services didn't go. And, you know, and so that would seem great and for low research places because it didn't require a whole infrastructure. It just required a pill. Uh, and then a very senior OBGYN who had a little um, project in rural India. She was, she was from um, Pune area. And she came to my office and she said, I hear there's a pill. And people in my villages are always asking, can't I get a pill for this? I think because the contraceptive pill became known, but it wasn't necessarily clear that this didn't, wasn't an abortion pill, you know? Right, right. Right? But women had the imagination to think of why, could it be? Is there one? You know what I mean? So, so I think there was sort of a latent demand um, that suddenly got more, more, more corporeal it became something like with with real substance once people understood that there that you could avoid pregnancy with a pill why couldn't you end a pregnancy with a pill you know i think that was sort of in people's minds i mean just lay people and not knowing any of the science or anything but that question began to be asked and this woman came to my office and said women want a pill for abortion and i hear there might be something Mm-hmm. Can't we get it? You know, so that was like, oh wow, you know, there are people out there who would help get it to women out in developing countries. You know, mm-hmm. so that that was very important for me, just personally, to know that there were people already thinking about this in whatever way. You know, not like not like a service delivery way, but yeah. just what women wanted. You know, and that it it had a niche everywhere. And then at that point, were you still at? I was a pop Population council. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So then, then there were a lot of complications, one of which was that the, I don't know if you've read the history of it in France, but the, the drug became a political issue because um, the company got cold feet and mm. decided to withdraw it from the market. It was, it, was, it was first registered in France, and the company decide, decided this was too scary. And at that time, it was right around the time that there was a big con- convention of OBGYNs in, in Rio, um, in, an international 
event that happens every three years in different parts of the world. It's a rotating conference. Something It was in the late 80s, I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the French Minister of Health refused to allow the company to withdraw it, saying in a very famous phrase that it, the pill was the moral property of women <sighs> and that the company could not remove it from the, from the French market. At that point, they had registered it in France, um, United Kingdom, and Sweden, and that was. And then they just decided they weren't going to register it anymore in any other countries. And that was that was an amazing business decision for a drug that clearly there was a niche for, and they had the only drug that could be approved at that point. And yeah. and they just stopped wanting to market it. They just got cold feet, and. So, but there was all this advocacy now building around it. So they had it was it was being used in France, and they and they had to continue to sell it. So because of the government. I was just going to say, like as someone who grew up in France, I'm I'm American, but I I lived in France for the better part of my my childhood, um, or until college, and it's just my, it's just insane to me that a country that's as entrenched in Catholicism and sort of conservative, more conservative family values and, you know, the idea of a structured family. I remember when marriage equality became a thing, there were 200,000 protesters on the Champs-Élysées that just came because, you know, because they wanted to defend, you know, maman, papa, mom and dad. And Mm -hmm. just wild to me that that the French Ministry of Health was like, nope, this is the moral property of women. And yeah, well, it was a very liberal government. It was under Mitterrand. I think that they were all very much sort of socialists and, you know, had a different aspect. But I also think that family values per se didn't necessarily, is a different thing in France than in the U.S., right? Because in the U.S. it has to do also with sexual stuff. But in France, sexuality is different than it is mm-hmm. in the U.S. And so... I think you can have family values in some ways, but have more liberal sexual uh, orientation. Not not necessarily for homosexual, but heterosexual sex. So I think, yeah, I, I'm sure there are people who are, you know, very conservative. But don't forget, France has a long history of anti-clericalism. And the churches don't even belong to the church in France. The churches are properties of the state. And they're rented by the by the Catholic Church in France. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there is a bit of like distancing of the government from the religious base, I think. But anyway, yes, there are very conservative people in France, and but they just happen to have a different kind of government at that time. Not every French government would have done that, I think. Okay, so then what happened? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so there's two parallel stories. One is the use of pills internationally because the company was blocked. There's a very um, senior person there who really wanted to expand it to developing countries and to make it available to poor women in other countries. And he was blocked by the company itself um, and their policies. And his name is Andre Ullman. He's, mm-hmm. He has perfect English if you ever want to talk to him. And he worked for the company for many years. And he, he was the person in charge of that drug. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wrote a book, actually, about it, which I have read. It only exists in French. That that story was one of working with the company in a kind of tense way because the 
person who had to give us the drugs to do our work in developing countries really wanted to be the one to do it himself. And so it was like with reluctance that he would supply our trials because he, he was annoyed that his, he couldn't be doing this and we were doing it, et cetera. So, what weird. Was yeah, it just it was, a control thing? Just what? Like a control thing? I don't know if it's control. I think it was just disappointment, you know, like mm -hmm. he really loved this drug, you know, mm -hmm. and I don't, I don't know. I, it's very interesting. Yeah. So it was, it was, a, it was a kind of a, um, basis of friendship and um, competition or something. I don't know. It was kind of weird, but anyway, we're, we're still friends. So it's fine. <laughs> um, and in the U.S. was a different dynamic because in this thing about U.S. women, why can't women have this pill? You know, was a big, it was a big talking point and there was, you know, like little signs like RU486, um, you know. <laughs> and, yeah. And I have a bottle with a little label like that from that time. Um, and, and one of President Clinton's promises in the campaign was to bring it to the U.S. Oh, I didn't clock that. Yeah. So then the Roussel said, well, we want nothing to do with this, but we will give the rights to someone who has a contract with us. And there were two people, two, two agencies that had that contract, as I said, WHO and the Pop Council. So WHO said, no, we're not, we're not a pharma company. We're not going to become a pharma company. We're an international agency supported by governments from all over the world. We're not going to do this. So the Population Council, which is based in New York, you know, based in the States, said, okay, we're here. We'll do it. So that's, what that's how it got to the, to the Pop Council for, for registration in the U.S. And that was a big enterprise. You know, they had to do a clinical trial because the FDA didn't want it only based on... Um, data from Europe. So it took years to do that and a lot of negotiation with the FDA, which was then and still is now completely terrorized by this drug. So it was, it was a very long process because not only having to start from scratch from a large clinical trial with over 2,000 women and then analyzing it and then submitting it and all of that, but negotiating how we distributed, negotiating what the label would say. It was just endless. And, of course, mm -hmm. everybody wanted to have it very closely held. And, of course, some of us did not want it to be that closely held. And it seems to be a drug, which is proven over time, to be extremely effective and extremely safe. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's, those are the criteria for FDA approval, safe and effective, right? Mm -hmm. And it met it with flying colors, right? But still, the FDA didn't really want it to be easily available and for political pressure, among other things. So it's been a big battle to keep unwrapping <laughs> the drug to make it more accessible to people because it comes with such a, so tied up that it's, it's, been, it's been a challenge, yeah. How would you describe the FDA's reluctance to just approve the drug? Like, what do you think are the reasons behind that? I think the FDA was willing to approve the drug, but they were willing to approve it thinking very much about its social significance in their minds and how it should be regulated, which is a little bit different from saying safe and effective because, you know, it has this rims and, and that, that does, it doesn't seem to merit it compared to other drugs that really are dangerous. This mm -hmm. is not a dangerous drug except for the fact that it produces an abortion, which is dangerous socially and politically, not mm -hmm. physically. So, and then, and even the company, I remember one time um, 
Brucella Clafet no, no longer exists, the company. It was, it was kind of one of those little fish that was eaten by a series of bigger fish. Mm-hmm. So the first big fish that ate Roussel was Herxt, which is a German company. And Herxt um, had a, a, a CEO that came and visited us. And he just, the, most of what he was interested in talking about was the fact that if we let people get to this drug too easily, um, boyfriends would put it in their girlfriend's drinks. Okay, that was what his scenario was for this drug. It wasn't like, wow, this could be amazing for women. It was like, no, we're going to have people putting it in other people's drinks because they don't want them to have the babies they want to have. No, this is not, you know, a very common occurrence, although it has happened and it probably always will happen because people do all kinds of nefarious things to other people when they're motivated by whatever strong feelings they have. But it's not the major way this drug gets used, and it's not the. <laughs> but it was so amazing to hear somebody actually focus on that potential <laughs> event rather than what it would mean for services for women, what it would mean for you know even the ability for women to realize their potentials in other areas of life. What a, what a socially changing drug this could be. And instead, focus on this bizarre behavior that some people might undertake, which, you know, it's true. People, everything that people have, they use in peculiar ways when they're peculiar. And, uh, <laughs> <you know. laughs> but, but that can't be the main discussion. You can think about it and think about how, how to, you know, deal with it. But <laughs> it was such a distraction, this, this kind of thinking. And it still is, by the way. It still is. So I, in preparing for for today, read an interview that you did with the New York Times like 10 years ago. You predicted that self-managed abortion would be world-shaking, which was the the wording that you used. And And here we are 10 years later. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on whether that, proven to be true in your mind yeah I, I think it's a, a slow a slow onset earth shaking right <laughs> not, not immediate but but I think the pushback and it always has been with this drug the pushback indicates that other people feel the same in other words the pushback is enormous about letting women have this drug in their own hands like let imagine uh, you know what the reaction would be if somebody said, okay, we're going to have over-the-counter access to this product. Imagine. I mean, you, and you, so that fact, I think, means that it, it does kind of create huge social anxiety from people and political anxiety from people in government. One of the, one of the interesting things to me is that we are discussing it much more now, self-managed abortion. We are, people are implementing it more. Some people in the vanguard have been creating services to do it, and other people have been using those services. What we don't know is how much this is really happening, because no one has any way of tracking it. People, I think, are um, trying in honest ways, but there's a little bit of self-deception maybe in some of the assertions um, that we actually can know what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to know what people are actually doing when something like this is, is available. There, remember that most of the manufacturers of this drug, of mifepristone, 
are situated in India using chemical, you know, using powders, using, using the, the drug um, powder that's basically made in China in very large quantities. And the U.S., so the, even the European consumption of this is minuscule, well, might be minuscule compared to what the supplies are being pumped out of these two places. We don't know. We don't know how many people are using them. No. I mean, there are about 30 or 40, I think, brands in India. So, I mean, I haven't tallied them. I don't know exactly what's where. But, um, but yeah, they're, they're doing a big commerce all over the world. I mean, there are trucks taking it to Pakistan. There are trucks taking it to, or the boats taking it to Sri Lanka. There, I mean, there, in other words, there's a lot of use of these pills outside of India. They're made in India, but there's a lot going on some of it leaks over borders some of it's carried over borders some of it goes by mail you know there's all kinds of ways now so it sounds like they're kind of anonymous disparate uh, manufacturing facilities factories that are are making the drug and that providers or individuals are kind of liaisoning or sourcing from these factories well i don't i don't know about what we can say about that us I, i'm I'm, yeah. I'm thinking that the major ways that people get it are through either aid access type of things that, you know, Rebecca Gompertz right. was doing out of the Netherlands um, or um, on pop-up links that you, know, you Google, I need an abortion or how can I get an abortion pill or abortion pill? And you can find sites which are evanescent. They, they come and go. Uh, right. They change their name. They, they may all lead to a few places but they change their name they're sort of not not there for long you can order on those sites you can order pills mm -hmm. um whether you uh, if you go to aid access you get a little more screening and you get a little more information but basically you can buy them without any medical contact by just going and online so and who's tracking that nobody mm -hmm. i mean nobody knows so we don't know how many people there are there's no way to find out and i think um, or at least we don't have that capacity with outside of the total police state, you know? Right. Um, right. So, so people have made estimates, but I think they all fall short in various ways of what might be happening. Um, and I don't think it's too much to wonder whether some of the declines in abortion rates have to do with the fact that some women are not going to clinics where it gets reported uh, in, in even in places which have good statistics. I don't know, I, and I don't trust the estimates that we have. They, I don't think they're based on really solid foundations. So I don't know how much is happening. Mm -hmm. I, I will tell you, you probably saw the article that was, um, uh, the first author was Chloe Murtaugh about buying pills online. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so one interesting thing to us about that, I, I think it's in the article, but it's not one of the main points. To me, it was very interesting to look at the postmarks on the packages she got, because about half of them were postmarked from India, where most of the manufacturers are, mm -hmm. which makes sense, and it's very inexpensive from India. And the other half were postmarked in the United States. So, uh, but the, the drugs were Indian drugs. So... We have people mailing it from outside the U.S. one by one to people who buy it. And we have people bringing it in, in suitcase or something, and bringing it to the U.S. But you don't need very many people to bring in pills for, you know, or very many suitcases, uh, which are mostly pills, 
to, to supply a lot of people because each person needs only one pill or if you have the combi pack, it's five little pills on, on a little blister pack. You can bring hundreds of, of abortions in one suitcase, right? Wow. Right. So I, I think that there are people who occasionally do that and they're not normal drug runners or whatever, so they're not under surveillance. They're people who are coming as tourists or whatever and they're bringing, you know, a bunch of pills as well. So, mm-hmm. and I think they get through because, you know, thank goodness we don't have a security system which, you know, strip searches everybody every time they mm-hmm. cross a border or whatever. So I think that there's a traffic, if you will, I, I hate to use that word because that always sounds sleazy, but there's a, there's a commerce, let's say, in which pills are mailed into the country from elsewhere. And there is a commerce where people bring larger numbers into the country and distribute it to individuals outside the medical system, but within the United States. So there's both things going on. And I, and to, to tell you how many people are getting abortions this way, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But, you know, one of the things, it's interesting. I mean, we were always wondering when there would be a sort of a tipping point when when most people who might need an abortion would actually know they could use pills because there was a long time when people didn't know about the abortion pill, even though Planned Parenthood was using it and, you know, a third of their abortion services was were with pills. People on the street confused it a lot with emergency contraception or some other thing. They didn't know what the abortion pill was. They didn't realize you could really have an abortion with just a pill. So I think now we're in a different place because I think now young people they all know somebody who's used it or they've heard about it and they know, really know that it really is a way of having an abortion. It seems to be a different, in a different place when I talk to young people now. That's mm-hmm. not a scientific statement. That's just my impression about the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just thinking like from my own personal perspective, if I was like, okay, I'm experiencing an unwanted pregnancy, I want to terminate and I want to do it myself, <clears throat> I want to go online. I think the number one question mark and and fear other than privacy concerns which maybe we could talk about later is uh fraud (laughs) like what if right 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 legit okay that's true i mean honestly if you go online and you um send money to a place (coughs) and you will order something (coughs) excuse me and the the most the barest most glaring example is you would get nothing you would never hear from them right you would be sending money and get nothing no, mm-hmm. nobody would send you a box mm-hmm. okay that's of course possible with everything you order online right yeah, yeah. um the other the th- the second thing you think about is what people think about more they'll send fake pills right right exactly but that is very unlikely to happen because the actual cost of the pills at the manufacturing sites is almost nothing. So it's very, very, it's very cheap. Mm-hmm. So to buy other pills to put in there isn't going to be much cheaper than sending the real pills. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. So, yes, it's possible that you would send your money off and get nothing. But mm-hmm. I haven't heard of that happening either. Mm-hmm. But I'm not surprised that people get real pills because the real pills are not expensive. And any pill you would have to access and buy, you know, it might be similar. It, it may, you know, it, I'm sure that there have been sites that, that send real pills, but of the ones we got, they were all real pills. Mm-hmm. And when you say we, is that you and the people at Genuity? Or? Yes, and then Alyssa Wells and uh, 
you know, in their group, they they had some data on that too. So it was combined in the study, in in the paper. Can we can we talk about kind of what you just brought up and around privacy and around the idea of a police big brother surveillance state, which I feel like is becoming more discussed or more uh-huh, uh-huh, right now, uh-huh. just not in necessarily in this space, but just right. It's very clear what is and what isn't being tracked. And it's becoming more clear to consumers that a lot more is being tracked than we thought. And so do you, is there any concern around the potential of the government or an employer or a family member somehow there being some digital track record of there are people concerned with it i just spoke to a lawyer who's working with the ford foundation on things like that there are there are people who are concerned there i think most people who want who who are involved in transactions are are facing a personal emergency and they don't really the situation they're in outweighs the concern when you were describing earlier you're like thank goodness we don't live in a state where the cops are going through everyone's suitcases and looking for abortion drugs do you think that we have to worry about a police state where they start opening our suitcases looking for abortion drugs? Or we had, if we had such a police state, this wouldn't be our only or major worry, right? right? I mean, yes, I guess we have to worry about our democracy in all kinds of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we have, we have some big worries, but I don't think this rises to be a sole worry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, detached from all the other worries that we have, mm-hmm. you know? Is there a conversation around if Roe v. Wade gets overturned? Is that something that you're you're talking about, thinking about? No, because they're, it's a completely different thing. I mean, right now, people who are fighting about Roe v. Wade are um, are, are are worried about the actual provision out of medical in medical services, right? They're worried about being able to have clinics that perform abortions. Mm-hmm. This is already offline, if you will, <laughs> although it's very much online. Mm-hmm. So, um, so in a way, it's a very different kind of threat. Although, then, if it were illegal per se to perform an abortion, then you would have other kinds of issues. And and there are these potential issues, like who's is somebody practicing medicine without a license? You know, I, I don't know. I think it's kind of hard to say this is a prescription drug if you're also saying this is an unregistered drug that you can't know what it is and you're you can't use it. You know what I mean? So it, it's not even clear. But there isn't any statute that I know of that prohibits looking to find an abortion, right? Mm-hmm. I, you know, so uh, that's what the person was doing. Then uh, they're not, I mean, you could argue, it would be a big argument. Which, was this person practicing medicine without a license? That is a problem. But usually that means you're practicing it on someone else, you know, not yourself. Mm-hmm. Because as far as I know, and this is something I have mentioned several times, what you do to your own body, mm-hmm. people can't, don't get, get criminal charges about. Like you can, uh, that they've practiced medicine, like a person, people show up in emergency rooms having mutilated themselves in various mm-hmm. ways, and they're not charged with practicing medicine without a license. But I feel yeah. like there have been those news reports around miscarriages. And- yeah, 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 because there are other kinds of laws, that, that, but they're not uniquely for this. In other words, they're not about medical, getting medical abortion over, over, the, over, the, over the Internet. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're in states 
where there are highly restrictive laws about abortion and you have to conform to certain um, standards or certain procedures to have an abortion. Like you have to wait two days, you have to, or, or you, you have to view an ultrasound or you, you can only be done up to X many weeks or all those things. You would be in contravention of all those, those statutes because you had not done the things that are prescribed, but, but, but in more liberal states, there if you strip those things away, mm-hmm. it's very people don't get arrested for doing their own abortion, mm-hmm. like in New York State. I, in fact, well, when we did this project, we were ordering pills for the project, right? And then we were sending them to a lab to analyze them. We weren't performing abortions at all. We were just ordering the pills. <clears throat> and a donor said to us, "Oh, please don't use our money for this because it could be illegal." And I said. How could it be illegal? We're ordering pills online. We don't know what's in them. We're trying to find out what's in them. And we're not giving them to any human being mm-hmm. to use. Mm-hmm. How could this be illegal? So so then the people who are pro-choice people working at like ACLU and places like that mm-hmm. said, well, we don't, we're not criminal lawyers. We can't tell. But I'll, I'll, I'll give you the name of a criminal lawyer who might know. Mm-hmm. So I had this conversation with the criminal lawyer. Mm-hmm. And he said, to me, well, what are you doing? And I told him, and he said, um, uh, you're ordering pills and you're sending them to a lab and they're supposed to be abortion pills, right? Yeah. And then he said, well, I don't, I don't really, I don't, where are you? He said. <laughs> and I said, I'm in New York City. And he said, why are you even talking to me? LAUGHTER you know, so it's a very local jurisdictional, you know, if some DA wants to make a, a point by arresting somebody for doing something. But these are not things that are clearly prohibited. You know what I mean? There's a lot in this murky space of what is and isn't prohibited that some people can try to bend the law or the language to cover somebody that they want to prosecute for, to make themselves famous or to make a statement or who knows. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, if people don't have those kinds of um, incentives, um, usually nothing happens. So, uh, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's a, it's a kind of murky legal area, I think. Mm-hmm. Overall, are you feeling optimistic, pessimistic, just in terms of the state of SMA and the state of kind of abortion access, both in the U.S. and in the world? Like, what, what is, what's kind of the resounding feeling that you, you have? So to be honest, I think though the answer to that kind of question comes from what kind of person you are and not from any reality testing, <laughs> you know, sure. and I, and I tend to be optimistic, so I feel optimistic, but I don't think it has grounded in any, any good analysis of the situation. You know, I um, think we've made big st- strides. People might say it took too long. And in fact, of course it could have been shorter, but I feel gratified that people understand the potential of the technology, that more people are using it, that more people are interested in it, that people, that there's finally kind of a, a kind of a community of, of, of support for, for this, that, that goes beyond just the immediate people immediately involved with the science and the medicine. Um, and, and so I, I feel like that's a good thing because sometimes things are, so well planted in society that they it's very hard to eradicate them or get rid of them e- easily now i have to say the last 3 years 
of living in the United States, it seems that nothing is permanent and people can lose a lot without expecting to. And so who knows, but we have to be vigilant, obviously, but I, I think we're in a good place with this and we have a good platform to stand on and a lot of experience and a lot of allies and so I'm I'm hopeful, but um, you know, I want to be realistic as well. I mean, nobody in Germany in 1938 thought what what happened to Germany by 1945, right? You know, so uh, yeah, I, I think you never can predict what's going to happen because of the larger geopolitical situations and things like that. Also, do you want to just say anything about your your org? Genuity has a website. Um, uh, our organization. There's a lot of information on it, including articles and maps and uh, various kinds of um, teaching tools and things like that. So there's there's a lot on our website. So it's www.genuity.org. And um, we um, are also very interested in collaborating with people. So um, you know, researchers and advocates and anyone who has projects in this area that um, wants to collaborate with people like us, that's wonderful. And so we're open to to more work in this area. So Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. So I'd love to, to just sort of wrap up, and this is um, the way that we're going to be wrapping up all of our, our podcast episodes. If you had a megaphone and were standing on the top of a building and could share one thing uh, with the crowds below – what would that be? Never yeah. give up. Stay in it. Keep fighting the fight. I would yeah. never give up. And with someone who's been fighting the fight as, as long and as creatively and, and beautifully as you have, um, that, that means something. Never give up that you're still in it and that you are still optimistic. So thank you so much, Beverly, for joining us. Oh, you're um, welcome. And that's it for this episode. We want to get these stories to folks who are looking for them. If you know of anyone who wants to learn more about this topic, a friend, family member, or colleague, please share this episode with them. Our goal is to demystify this conversation and what that takes is talking about it. Head over to our website, smapodcast.org, to get the resources discussed in this interview, as well as the transcript which we have in both Spanish and English. Thank you for listening and have a good one.